Hi, everyone. Um, let me add my welcome to Michelle's. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. I figured tonight, especially as a lot of us are getting around family members, um, some who may be sober and some who mm, not so much, it might be a great time to go over the chapter Two Wives, which has some really great spiritual principles. Both the chapter is really in two parts. It's first how we can help the person who is struggling. And then it's what to do for ourselves in that situation. So um, again, before I start, happy Passover, happy Easter, happy, happy spring. Um, but, you know, for someone, for some of us like me, I'm very fortunate. My kids are coming home tonight, somewhere around four in the morning, they'll show up. My nephews who I love and haven't seen in years came in this afternoon. Um, but some people might be alone and that's hard. And I can't think of too many people who feel lonelier than the wife of an alcoholic, right? Imagine waiting up for him night after night, not knowing when or if he's coming home. And if he does, whether he'll be sullen and silent or raging and abusive. And imagine if you have kids and you watch your children as they learn how to be silent and tiptoe around the house and make themselves small so that daddy doesn't notice them. It's easy to imagine that this wife, even though she may have been a woman of faith her entire life, it's easy to imagine her whispering in the dark, God, where are you? Do you even hear me anymore? And then we get to this chapter, Two Wives, where it says on page 104 that we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. And you can almost feel these wives who've gone before her reaching out to this struggling, lonely woman to say, you matter. And I believe if we listen closely to the words in this chapter, we can also hear God saying, and you matter to me. And of course, isn't that what we all really want to hear, right? Um, for just a minute, before I get into the meat of this chapter, I want to just turn back quickly to my favorite chapter, chapter four, We Agnostics, where they tell us the main purpose of this big book. It's to, quote, enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem, end quote. If this power, this God is going to solve my problem, and of course the first problem I want him to solve is my food problem, this God must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So that's this God, this loving God who we matter to, who we're gonna try to encounter on the pages of Two Wives. So this chapter, Two Wives, generally doesn't get a lot of play. Other people skip it saying, well, I'm not married to an alcoholic. It doesn't apply to me. But I think there's lots of principles we could apply in our own recovery. Because really, my recovery isn't about food plans and meetings. It's about how I practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. For someone new, that may sound weird, right? When I came to my first OA meeting, all I wanted was to stop binging. And of course, the number one thing I wanted was that food plan. Well, it didn't work. Six and a half years in, still binging. And finally, someone said to me that I need to change. I had to have this thing called a spiritual experience. 
And what is that? Um, well, page 25 explains. It's basically when God rewires my heart. Um, well, how does that happen? Do I just say a prayer and God comes in with his gardening tools? Tried that, didn't work. Um, but what does work is this 12-step program, which teaches me how to get a conception of God, how to surrender, how to clean up my past, and then how to practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. Um, so there are some basic spiritual principles we have to practice if we want this spiritual experience, like honesty. Um, if we're not honest, we may as well be taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't coexist with dishonesty. And by the way, we don't have to wait until we're on a certain step to start practicing principles like honesty. Right away, we have to be honest. We have to be unselfish. We have to put spiritual principles to use. And again, this chapter is just chock full of a lot of spiritual principles. So I just wanted to talk about some that hopefully are helpful. Um, so on page 104, the last paragraph there, it says, we want to analyze mistakes we've made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness is too great to overcome. Um, I love that because what it's telling me is that God's going to do one of two things if I work this program. He's either going to change my situation or he's going to change me so that I'll be okay even in a hard situation. Um, to me, that's a big demonstration of how much I matter to God. Door number one, he sits at his cosmic computer and reroutes things so that my situation is changed for the better. Or door number two, he changes my heart. Either way, I win. Go to the bottom of page 106. It talks about what happens to an addict as the sprees grow closer. It says that the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority settled down on our loved ones. And these things terrified and distracted us. Terrified and distracted us. Distracted us from what? Well, I know that when I become overly focused on a family member or anything else, I'm distracted from God. Um, the way I like to think of it is that I'm swimming in one of those, you know, lap pools that has the lanes roped off and I'm swimming toward God. I visualize that. And if I start swimming in another lane, I lose my focus on God and doing his will. Other people's recovery and the future are things that are not in my lane and that will distract me. Okay, top of page 107, and we are on the AA Big Book. Um, it says that as animals on a treadmill, we patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile attempt to reach solid ground. And it reminds me of that little hamster in a cage on that like wheelie thing. He's working and working and getting nowhere. And that's how I was myself when I first came into OA. I worked really hard and I didn't get anywhere. In fact, I got worse during my first six, seven years in OA. Um, I got worse, even though I was doing lots of work because I wasn't doing the right work. It was like being a diabetic and a doctor telling me to take penicillin. Well, I take penicillin. I'm doing the work. I'm doing what I'm told, but I haven't been told the right thing. I need a new doctor 
who gives me correct information. So my caution here is to read this book, this big book, if you're new and you're looking for a sponsor and you get to vet your sponsor and make sure that he or she works the steps the way it's outlined in this book. Okay, back to 107, it says that the wives endured watching their husbands go to sanitariums, hospitals, jails. And the wives say, we naturally made mistakes. And that's the second time this chapter uses the word mistakes. And I like that because most of us tend to fall off the side of the bed of either being too easy or too hard on ourselves. I was the first type. I'd make a mistake in a difficult situation, yet, you know, like yelling at one of my kids. And afterwards I'd say, oh, I didn't deal with this situation well. I must be in spiritual kindergarten. I'm nowhere. I have no spiritual recovery. But they're saying when things are hard, we're going to make mistakes and they don't pass judgment on us. And we shouldn't have judgment on ourselves. Yes, we should fix these things, admit we're wrong, make our amends. We don't want to fall off the bed on the other side and say, well, I'm only human and enable ourselves. If I lose my temper 100% of the time, it's because of me, but it's a mistake. And if I learn from it, it doesn't make me a bad person, not worthy of God's love. Um, Page 108, second full paragraph, it says, Try not to condemn your alcoholic husband, no matter what he says or does. He's just another very sick, unreasonable person. When he angers you, remember that he's very ill. So I see two things they're telling me to practice here with difficult people. And again, this could be a spouse, a boss, a child. First, don't condemn. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, the first one is condemning never works, right? Who of us got into recovery because someone said, you know, you're a really horrible compulsive eater. You're overweight. You're ruining your life. You're ruining other people's lives. Get your act together. And then we just said, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Thanks for the condemnation. I think I'm going to work a 12 step program and get my act together. Zero of us got here that way. Right. Um, Also, if I'm condemning, it's dangerous for me spiritually, because when I'm condemning you, I'm at the top of the mountain and guess where you are. And that means I'm loaded with pride. And the only place to go if I'm up on a mountaintop full of pride is tumbling down on my butt. Um, The second thing it says that when he angers you, remember, he's very ill. Remembering that's a verb. It's an action step to take. I can remind myself that this person is ill, right? Remember when we're resolving resentments, we say this person is perhaps spiritually sick. If I'm living with a raging alcoholic, I can say that person is perhaps spiritually sick. And I need to have the kind of compassion I would if I were living with someone who had a brain tumor that made them act in inappropriate ways. Um, Before my mom passed away, I I picked her up one day for a doctor's appointment. And before I got there, she got all agitated and had the front desk at her place call me to see where I was. Now I was right on time and I was a bit annoyed. I said, mom, why do you have them call me? I'm not late. But a couple of weeks later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So after that, when she would get agitated or say things that weren't very nice, 
I didn't have any annoyance or resentment because I knew that she was sick. Okay. Okay. Um, then in the book, they talk about four different types of drinkers and what we can do to help them. The top of page 111, they give us some general principles that can be applied to all. They say the first principle of success is to never be angry. Well, that's kind of hard if you've got someone who's mentally ill or drinking or abusive. But remember, page 66 tells me I can't harbor resentment. I can't be a safe harbor for resentment. I can't just say, okay, this person gets me mad and I'm entitled to wallow in it. What I'm supposed to do is acknowledge I'm angry, but then I have to do something about it. Inventory it, share it with someone, ask God to remove it and make my amends. And then that paragraph, first paragraph on page 111, by saying patience and good temper are most necessary because again, we're dealing with a disease, not a moral issue. The second principle they give us is you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I say what he must do about his fill in the blank. Best example I have is my husband. He used to smoke and I did not like it, but I didn't tell him what he needed to do about his smoking. All I did was say, we've got a couple of little kids. So if you're going to keep smoking, we need to take out some life insurance on you. And then I actually asked him, how often can I tell you that I don't like your smoking? And he said once a month. And I think I stick to it. And by the way, he ultimately quit smoking. It's been more than almost 15 years now, um, but not because I nagged him. I didn't nag him, but I did get the life insurance because that was a boundary issue to protect me and my kids. Um, the third principle they give us, be determined that your husband's drinking or your husband's fill in the blank or your kids fill in the blank or your boss's fill in the blank is not going to spoil your life. It says it is possible to have a full and useful life, even though your husband continues to drink. And I would say, even though your blank continues to blank, because our book tells us our recovery is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent upon our relationship with God. So if I'm too upset over what someone else is doing, then there's a problem with my relationship with God. Um, for me in the past couple 20 years, I would say the thing that most blocked me from a full and useful life was anger and fear surrounding my kids. And sometimes well-meaning friends would say to me, well, it's normal you would worry so much. You're a mother. But I worried so much because my attention was in the wrong place. Here's a prayer that I found that helped me a lot with my kids. So maybe it'll help someone here. Um, Lord, I see that I don't really love my children too much. I love you too little in proportion to them. Only if I love you supremely, will I love everything else well and properly. Capture my heart, right? I pray for God to capture my heart so that I love him supremely. And then I can love everyone else properly. Um, the fourth principle they list here on this page says, do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so no matter how hard you try. Remember, this 
program tells me to live and let live. So I can't set my heart on reforming my husband's smoking, my college kids decision on whether or not they're going to go to church or anyone's eating, drinking, gambling, anything. Um, so they've told me four principles so far. Don't get angry. Don't tell them what to do. Be determined that this person's faults are not going to spoil your life. And don't set your heart on changing another person. And they say, these are hard things to do. But then they tell us, you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. So if my heart is broken, I can ask myself, which of these principles have I violated? Have I gotten angry and harbored resentment? Have I been telling someone what they need to do about what I perceive as their issues? Am I letting what they're doing destroy my life? Am I setting my heart on changing someone? Basically saying, I can't be happy unless this person does whatever. I can always hope and pray, but my heart needs to be set on one thing primarily, and that's God. Um, page 115, another principle, fifth principle. It says, you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. Remember, we're told back in chapter six, I have no right to save my own skin at another person's expense. So a good principle when we're doing 10 steps is, if I have a resentment against Susie Q, I want to call someone who doesn't know Susie Q. I'm not going to call Susie Q's sponsor or a mutual friend as, as much as possible. And then we get a promise there on the um, page 115. It says, your new courage, good nature, and lack of self-consciousness will do wonders for you socially. So if I practice these principles, I'm going to start getting more courage. That means my fears are going to be less. I'm going to have a good nature, which means I'm not going to be so tense from trying to control the world. I'm not going to worry about what people think about me. And then, of course, I'll be a better friend. Sixth principle, page 115. In dealing with kids and their father, it's best not to take sides in any argument he has with them while drinking. So the rule I made for myself when my kids were little is that unless my husband was doing something dangerous, I wouldn't interfere. Now, dangerous doesn't mean, you know, feeding them fast food. Dangerous means like letting three-year-olds play in traffic, which, you know, he never did. I should have kept my mouth shut a lot more. Um, back on page 106, it says, we've tried to hold the love of our children for our, their father, which is an instinctive thing for a mom to do if she thinks her husband is doing everything wrong and that her kids won't love them. Um, a lot of times when my kids were younger, I did try and manipulate relationships and think things like, okay, if I don't tell my husband to go outside and play basketball with Daniel, he's not going to have a good relationship with Daniel. And then when Daniel grows up, he's going to remember my husband's neglect and not like him. Well, Daniel is now 21 and he adores my husband more than he adores me, actually. Um, so my job is to let other people have their own relationships and not try to manage and control them, either to get people to love each other, or if I'm mad at one of them, to get the other person to take my side. Um, okay, bottom of page 115, seventh principle. 
Don't lie on behalf of your husband in order to protect him. We are people who have to be honest, even if there will be consequences for another person. In the chapter to employers, it says sometimes an employer may worry that the guy's drunk when his wife calls and says he's sick. It says if he's trying to recover and he's drunk, he'll tell you, even if it means the loss of his job. So again, we don't lie. If I'm lying, I'm telling God to keep out. Um, then on page 116, there's a shift. It's like they said, okay, up until now, we've been talking about how to help your husband, but now let's talk about you. They say, life's a lot better when lived on a spiritual plane. And if God can solve the age old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. And I can just see a wife reading this. It's like, what, me too? No, no, no. I was here to help the drunk I'm married to. And now they're talking about me? Like, no way, Jose. But the book gently presses on saying, we wives found like everyone else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, self-centeredness, selfishness, and dishonesty. And it says, we used to think we were good people capable of being nicer if only our husband stopped drinking, right? I wouldn't have been nasty if my husband had only, if my kids had only, but remember our recovery is never dependent on what anyone else does. So it says, okay, here's the solution. Try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives and practice the opposite. So the opposites would be humility, gratitude, unselfishness, honesty, and self-sacrifice. And on page 117, we are promised that if we practice these things, God will give us a radically changed attitude toward the people in our lives. God sees me. I matter to God. God himself will see the work I'm doing, even if my husband, my kids, my boss doesn't, and he will radically rewire my heart. So as a result of applying these spiritual principles, here's the gifts it tells me I get. Lack of fear, lack of worry, and lack of, of hard feelings. And then they tell me something I don't especially like. On page 117, it says, all problems won't be solved at once. The old problems will still be with you. And this is as it should be. I mean, this is as it should be. God's not going to like wave a magic wand and make all the problems go away as soon as I do my step work. Um, I mean, if I were God, that's how I would do it. But um, I have learned I'm quite underqualified for that job. Um, but I think what God may be trying to teach me, to teach us, is that when we're going through a difficult situation in our own house, these difficult situations force us to rely on God more and force us to look at the idols in our lives. Do I have an idol of a perfect marriage, an idol of perfect children? What I had was an idol of per a perfect relationship with my children. So if my kids were mad at me um, or I thought the relationship wouldn't be perfect, um, it just, it made me crazy. It just, it drove me to either over-discipline them 
or under-discipline them, either to try to win their affection or to get back at them for not loving me right. I was paralyzed with fear that when my kids grew up and were no longer under my control, they wouldn't love me anymore. Now, I could get all psychological about how I was raised and everything, but that doesn't help. What helped me was seeing the idolatry of this kind of relationship, confessing it to God and to someone else, and to practice the opposite. And now, I hope my kids love me, but if they don't, it's not the end of the world. And truly, since I've been more relaxed about it, our relationships are so much better. Um, Here's a prayer I've used, which can be changed to fit anything that's too important in our lives. I used it for my kids. Lord, I entrust my children to you now. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that as I entrust my children to you, you're free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with me wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. Thank you that I matter to you, Lord. And thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. God, I'm excited to watch and see what you will do. Amen. Okay, um, back to the book. Page 117, they continue and say these workouts, meaning the difficult discussions we have to have, should be regarded as part of your education. Um, you know, sometimes in doing a fourth step, people will say, where am I wrong? And a lot of times our part is, we didn't have a difficult conversation, right? If um, if I think I, I'm just making something up, let's say I think my husband spends too much money on home repairs, um, but I never say anything. Well, then my part is I never had a difficult conversation. And by the way, I think my husband spends the exact right amount on home repairs. So I, I got lucky there. Um, so it tells us, let's see, that we're going to make mistakes, says, but if you're earnest, they won't drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize them. What does it mean to capitalize on my mistakes? Um, I don't think it means I'm ever going to be 100% free of things like fear and anger, um, but it gets better. But here's what can happen and here's what should happen so we can see um, that we're getting better. Our bounce back period gets shorter. So maybe before I would get a resentment or a fear and be angry for three days or afraid for four days or so depressed I couldn't get out of bed for, you know, two and a half days. Then maybe after working the steps and practicing, it's down to two days, then one day, then two hours, then half an hour. I don't have it down to 10 minutes all the time, but I can generally resolve a resentment, a fear, or a sadness in way less time than I used to. So that's how we can tell if we're growing, if our bounce back period is shorter. How else do we capitalize on our mistakes? 
Well, the steps teach me I need to look at my part. So let's say if one of my kids is mouthing off to me and I get really upset, I don't stop with, she mouthed off. My part is I had an expectation. That word is thrown around way too much. I had an expectation that my kids don't mouth off to me. Well, I need to go deeper than that and look at the flaw in my makeup. Am I making an idol out of how much I matter to my children? Well, that's an idol. So she mouths off to me. It's like my idol is being threatened. We can tell something is an idol when we don't just have our feelings hurt, but when it feels like we got punched in the gut and can't get up. Um, so identify what my problem is or my idol is. I talk to someone who won't enable me. Very important to get um, a group of recovery peers who won't enable us. I know who to call who will just say, oh, you poor thing. And I know who to call who will say, you are being selfish and full of self-pity. Um, and I go to those people because I want to resolve these things. So I go to the people who will tell it to me straight. And then I repent. I go to God and ask for forgiveness. And then I just carry on my business trying to be helpful. Um, I ask God to remove the idolatry, if that's my defect, remove the fear, remove the anger, and practice the opposite. For me, the opposite of idolatry is true worship of God. So sometimes I'll just sing a worship song to God. Um, next principle, bottom of page 117 says, often you must carry the burden of avoiding resentments or keeping them under control. And in the margin of my big book, I wrote, it's not fair. And maybe it isn't fair, but it's loving. And as Melissa says, fairness is not our code anymore. Love and tolerance is my code. God's got my back. I don't have to worry about if things are fair. Um, Love is now my code. And what a great opportunity to practice self-sacrifice, um, which we have to do. So as someone utters a snarky remark, I can try not to start an argument. I can absorb it and just let it go. That's a way of practicing self-sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying if someone's married to someone who's beating them or verbally abusive, they're supposed to just take it. I'm talking about someone who's generally fine but every now and then says something that's insensitive. Sometimes it's okay to just let things go. Next principle, page 118, second full paragraph. It says, your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. I think there's two things for us here. If we don't expect too much, then we're not disappointed. We're always happily surprised. But also when it says he wants to make good, I think we're supposed to assume the best about people. People generally want to do the right thing. Maybe I'm wrong, but isn't it better to assuming the best in people rather than assuming the worst? Um, that's for sure how I want people to deal with me. Sometimes I just have a bad day, but usually I try to do what's right. Next principle, page 119. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. So we can intentionally look for our blessings. Like I've got a job, I've got heat in my house, and now air conditioning in my house. 
um, in the, as it's getting warm. I have a husband who loves me and supports my recovery work. I have kids who are willing to drive seven hours to come home for Easter. Um, and by the way, we don't just want to sit there and put these blessings on an app, you know, like a grocery list. We want to thank God for them. Um, next principle, bottom of page 119, find a great cause to live for. It says you probably need fresh interest as much as your husband and a great cause to live for. Well, how lucky are we, right? We get to recover. We get to help others and get closer to God in the process. I personally can't think of a greater cause. And they tell us on the top of page 120 how to live that out. Think about what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out of it. So maybe when we go places, we think, how can I contribute here instead of what's in it for me? It's how can I best serve God and the people here? And then finally, they talk about what if someone drinks again? And I love how they deal with this on page 120. How can this help us? Um, it says, perhaps your husband has made a fair start and things are going well, but then he gets drunk. What do you do? They say, if you're satisfied, he really wants to get over drinking, you need not be alarmed. So what they're telling us here is that it is possible to really want to recover, but stumble. That was me, my first six years. Remember also in the forward to the second edition, it says 25% of the original fellows who really tried recovered after relapse. Imagine if they'd given up on that 25%. By the way, I would have been in that 25%. So they tell us, don't be alarmed at the man's relapse. But they said, less anyone says, okay, it's fine. I'll go out and relapse and I'll be part of the 25%. Mm -mm. That's trying to manage and control it. It doesn't work. And they say, it is infinitely better, infinitely better that we have no relapse at all as has been true with many. So it is possible and desirable to never relapse. But they say, it's not a bad thing, only if the person sees he has to redouble his spiritual activities if he expects to survive. What does that mean to redouble our spiritual activities? I think it means work the steps harder, do more self-sacrifice for others, more time with God, more surrender of things I'm not quite willing to surrender, more God, more love, more service. And they tell us, if he gets drunk, don't blame yourself. I am never the cause of someone else's drinking or binging, and no one else is ever the cause of mine. Bottom of page 120, it says, God has either removed your liquor, your husband's liquor problem, or he has not. If he has not... If he has not, it had better be found out right away. Then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. So there's a lot here and a lot that can help us as compulsive eaters. So let's try to break it down. It says God has either removed the liquor problem or he has not. So for us, God has either removed our compulsive eating problem or he has not. Well, what does that even mean? Is God up in heaven flipping a coin 
heads, I'll remove Janet's eating problem. Tails, I won't. Uh-uh. They're telling me if God hasn't removed my food problem, I've not placed that problem and everything else in his hands. Remember, chapter four tells us that either God is everything or else he's nothing, meaning either I give God everything or it's as if I give him nothing. I can't give him my food plan, but cheat on my taxes or cheat on my husband. Can't do it. So I think what they're telling us is to see, is to look, what haven't we placed in God's hands and then do it. That's what the fundamentals are. It makes me think of like middle school social studies where we learned about the kings and the serfs. And as long as the serfs were on the king's land, when the invading army comes to attack, the king pulls up the drawbridge. And if I'm on his land, I'm protected. But if I wander off through dishonesty, lack of surrender, refusal to make amends or anything like that, then when the invading army comes and I'm not on the king's land, I'm not safe and protected. Not because the king doesn't love me, but because I've wandered off. So they're telling me we're liable to drink or eat compulsively if we wander off the king's land. But the good thing about this king is that he will always, always, always take us back. Um, okay, almost done here. Um, final page of this chapter, page 121. The writers of the chapter say, we realize this is hard stuff but we really want to help you avoid unnecessary difficulties. And they conclude by saying, good luck and God bless you. They're asking God, the creator who flung the stars in the sky, right? Who created the moon and all the planets to bless us. That means to confer his divine favor on us. And if we approach him in humility, he always will. Because whether we are wives living with raging alcoholics who feel we are unseen and unheard or compulsive eaters who feel our lives are unmanageable and no human power can save us, we matter. We always matter to God. And with that, I will pass.